Okay, we're going to start a new series today. Um, what is the church is the title of this first part. Um, we're going to look at a passage in First Peter. If you brought your Bible, which I encourage you to do, you can put your finger there, but I'm just going to let you know up front, we're not going to get to that passage until the very end. So if your finger cramps up, you can just relook it up maybe later. But there are a few other passages we're going to look at sooner than that. Um, this first message is, is introductory. This series, I want to reassure you, it's, it won't be like the last one. It's not a three-year series in Proverbs. Uh, so probably be more like a, a two- to three-month series. Um, we're going to look systematically, is the word, at the topic of the church. Now, there are a few different kinds of theology, and theology is just the study of God and his word. Um, there are different kinds of theology, and one of those is called systematic theology. And what that means is, you're asking, what does the Bible say about a particular topic? What does the whole Bible say? That, that refers to the Bible as a system where you look at different passages and different books to see what they say about a particular topic. That's what we're going to do regarding the church. That's different from what's known as biblical theology, which is when you take a particular book, let's say Philippians, and you say, who wrote this? What was it about? When was it written? What were the major themes? The apostle who wrote it, what was their thought process as they addressed needs in this, in this uh, book? That's biblical theology, where you're just looking at a book in its historical context. Um, systematic has to do with what the entire Bible says about a particular issue. That's the kind of look that we're taking at the, the concept of the church. So just wanted to give you a little heads up on that. Um, before we get to some passages here, I want to just briefly mention a few stories in recent history. On May 13th, 1931, a baby entered this world by the name of James Warren Jones. And as a young boy, he began attending church. And church very quickly became a very significant part of his life. So much so that when he graduated college, he decided to go into full-time ministry, which he was convinced was God's calling for his life. James, more commonly known as Jim, became strikingly charismatic in his ministry. He announced without reservation that he possessed the ability to foretell the future and also to heal the sick. He claimed for himself both psychic and healing powers, and he was unabashed in, in announcing that. In 1955, he founded a Pentecostal church by the name Wings of Deliverance, which eventually became known by its more famous name that a few of you might recognize, the People's Temple. Uh, Jim was very influential in his community because he was very visible in his community. He worked tirelessly in, in the streets. He ministered to the poor and the impoverished and the homeless. However, eventually he found himself embroiled in scandal, and this seemed to have to do mostly with an obsession that he had for power. And so in 1977, he relocated to Guyana, along with hundreds of his most faithful followers. And prior to that, he was in California is where he was based. Now, Jim and his followers settled in an agricultural commune that became known as Jonestown. Jim, who was known among his faithfulest followers as the prophet, here's a picture of him, he commanded blind obedience from his people. And when they got to Guyana, he confiscated their passports. And he confiscated millions of their dollars. He had, he had many very wealthy, influential friends and followers in his ministry. And he began to force compliance at Guyana through beatings and blackmail. 
and threats of execution for disobedience. Some of you have maybe seen documentaries on this story. They're quite fascinating. Well, as could be expected, eventually, back home in California, many of the relatives of his followers were becoming increasingly concerned. And they started to uh, cause a stir, asking questions and trying to find out what was going on in Guyana at Jonestown. And those relatives and friends finally managed to create enough of a stir, a stir that on November 14, 1978, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan, along with a team of reporters and investigators, they actually flew to Guyana to see what was going on and to get some answers. And it was only four days later that they realized they, they knew what they needed to know and they needed to get out of there. And so they made a run for the airstrip and Jim Jones uh, tried to have them stopped. He ordered his guards to stop them at the airstrip. And there are also 14 defectors from the community that attempted to escape with, with Jones and with the reporters. And in the end, Representative Ryan, along with three reporters and one other individual, were assassinated um, at that airstrip. The rest escaped into the trees or the surrounding country. Now, Jones, knowing that the truth would soon get out and light would be shed on what was happening there, he finally enacted a plan that he had cruelly rehearsed many times at this point in that commune among his followers. They had rehearsed a mass suicide together through drinking poison. Uh, it was grape flavor aid was what it was called, kind of like Kool-Aid. And it was laced with a, a concoction of many different poisons. And he had forced his people to, to go through uh, rehearsals of this. And in some cases, he even led them to believe it was for real. And it, it caused a lot of psychological damage to them, obviously. Um, but on this occasion, it was the real thing. It was, it was finally happening. And so they went to the pavilion. They were lining up. And when the moment finally came and the, re, the reality of that situation sunk in, some of Joan's followers began to panic and reconsider. And they were quickly persuaded not to reconsider by the uh, looking down the barrel of loaded guns held by the armed guards of Jim Jones. And they realized that they, if they would not take the, the drink willingly, they would forcefully be given it via syringe. Now, by the time it was all said and done, some 913 people lay dead, um, 300 of which were under the age of 18, some very young children. Um, I want to show you a photo that's a little disturbing. It's a bird's eye view of the aftermath. If you don't want to see that, you can feel free to avert your eyes, but we won't linger on it. But uh, here is the aftermath of that incident the next day. And with that image there, I want to ask you, is that a church? In any sense of the word, maybe not a Christian church, obviously, but in any technical sense of the word, is this a church? Okay, we can be done with that awful photo. Uh, how about this? This is a beautiful building that's often referred to as a church. This is the Duomo di Milano. Stunning architecture, isn't it? Now, the world would refer to this as a church. And I want to ask you the question, is it? What about this next one? Can anybody shout out what this famous place is? A little bit of trivia. It's hard to be brave to shout out in a room like this, I know. But this is St. Peter's Basilica. Is this a church? as is often referred to. When you walk into this architectural wonder, which honestly I would love to do someday, we'll see if, if God has that in, in the plans or not, but when you behold that place, what many would say is the absolute height of achievement of human artistic expression, 
When you walk into that building, are you walking into a church? What about this next picture? Is that a church? Many would say that this is actually the truest form of a New Testament church. It's a living room, a house church. Here's a question for you. This next slide, is this a church? Is that a church? Now, there are many in our culture today who bristle at the sight of such buildings, whether small or great. They look at these buildings called churches and they despise them. And they say, down, down with institutionalized church. Down with ritualized religion. Down with the established church. Revolt against formalized worship with all its attending corruption and hypocrisy. Get rid of it. Go out into the streets. Just love people. That's what it means to be the church. Flood the streets and carry out social justice. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. And so I would ask, is that true? Is that a, is that a true assessment? If they're right, those who would cry out in that way, then that would mean this next picture. That would mean this is most accurately the true church. Social do-gooding. Some would say, no, there's great corruption in the world, and, and we're here for a purpose to raise our voices in protest. And so this next slide, they'd say, this is what it really means to be the church, to affect change in society. To switch gears again for a moment here, on December 23rd, 1805, a baby boy was born into a poor farming family in Vermont, and this family had issues in every, with every single Christian church in their community, of which there were many. There was a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a couple others. This family would occasionally try visiting these churches, but quickly concluded that the denominational distinctives among them were an absolute evil and an abomination in God's sight, and so would not plug into or be a part of these church bodies. The father of this boy was a known treasure hunter. He believed in local legends of buried treasure, and later in his life, he wound up very disillusioned by his failure to turn up anything of real significance. Um, This young boy was unschooled for the most part, uh, didn't really read much, didn't read the Bible, But he was very sensitive toward his mother's disdain for the local Christian churches. And he was very sensitive toward his father's desire to uncover buried treasure. So lo and behold, one day he supposedly had a visit from none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus apparently told this boy, who at this point had become a young man, told him that all Christians and their denominations were an abomination to God. And that he was calling this young man to be the sole leader to reestablish the true gospel across the world. He supposedly uncovered golden plates at the Hill Cumorah in a forest nearby his home. And later he used what basically amounted to magical rocks called seer stones. And uh, kind of some magical spectacles, some goggles you could say that were to help him interpret these plates that were written with ancient Egyptian And conveniently, but supposedly by divine order, no one else was ever allowed to see these plates. Um, Although many tried desperately to find them, to uncover them, to turn the house upside down, to, to dig holes all around. Only him. He was the only one who supposedly had laid eyes and hands on them. Now later it was proven quite clearly that he had lied about his supposed translations. He had plagiarized. He did many other awful things. Um, Became involved in various criminal activities, swindled many people out of a great deal of money, and yet today, 
millions upon millions of followers are faithful to what he started, and they've grown into a global superpower of both wealth and real estate. And so we could ask on this next slide, is this a church in a true sense of the word or this? Again, magnificent architectural structures, incredible for the eyes to behold, are those churches. Or to go to the other side of the world and to a different religion, would you say that this could be called a church? What's this place? Cade? Taj Mahal. Good job, buddy. Man, good job, whoever his teachers are. You're doing great. The Taj Mahal. Or what about this next one? Would you refer to this as an abandoned church or just as an abandoned building? What would be the right thing to say? This is all leading somewhere. I'm not just going to show you pictures all day. I just found some of these to be very interesting. But this is, this is for a point today. It's to get us asking the question, what is a church? What is the church? Or who is the church? That's one of the questions, or those are a few of the questions we're hoping to answer over the coming weeks. And we are going to look to the Bible, to God's word, which is our only true authority for what we believe and what we do, to answer for us what God says in answer to this question. Not what man says, not what Pastor Ian says, not what anyone else says. What does God say about who or what the church truly is? Now, before we go any further, I want to clear up one issue that trips many people up today in this discussion. There's, there's been a confusing thing that's happened that I, I believe has been to our, our detriment where many average believers or churchgoers have, have mixed two important concepts up in their brains. And this gets a, a little bit philosophical, but I think if, if you hang with me, you'll understand what we're meaning by these things. But I want to let you know there is a profound difference between what the church is, that is the nature of the church, and what the church does, which is the purpose of the church. Those are different things. Being is different from doing. And in many cases in our culture today, people have mistaken those two, and they think it's by doing good and by going out into the streets or to society, that's what it really means to be the church. So on this next slide, what you see here is it's nature that is tied to being. That is, who am I? What am I? We are, by nature, certain kinds of beings. We're humans. God has made us a particular way so that we have our being as human creatures. It's different from a dog. We have some similarities with a dog, but we have stark differences as well. A dog has a different kind of nature. There are things that make it what it is. It's the same for an apple. It has a redness about it or a greenness and a crispness and a sweetness that makes the thing what it is. It's its, its being. It's its nature. It's the same with the church. The church has a nature. It has a kind of being that God has given to it that's different from what the church actually does that is more tied to its purpose than it is to its nature. So nature would say, who am I or what am I? And purpose would say, because of who I am, what am I to do? These are different issues, and it's important to distinguish between them. In this new series, we need to discover first what the Bible says, what God says about who we are as his people, as his body. Who are we? What's our nature? Only later can we discuss the lesser important truth, which is what then has he called us to do? We can't get those backwards. There's a priority structure. This can be a bit of a difficult concept. So let me give you an example more specifically of what I mean. 
There are those who sometimes have grown up in the church, in our, our country, in our culture, and they eventually get absolutely sick of the church. And what I mean is they get sick of sitting in a chair, and they get sick of singing the same songs, and they get sick of listening to some person rattle on in their sermons about their thoughts and their beliefs, and they think to themselves, this is stupid. What are we doing? There's no good being done to anyone. Why am I here? There's no point to this. And so they abandon this form of church, and they go out and they start something like a soup kitchen or some kind of ministry to the poor or the homeless. And then when everyone has their soup and they're sitting in a circle and they're eating together, they they look around and this fellow might smile and say reassuringly to himself, ah, finally, this is the true church. This is really what it means to, to do church and to be church. Those stuffy theologians, they can sit around and debate theology all night long. I'm going to actually be the real church by going out and loving my neighbor and doing good. I want to be quick to affirm it's certainly good to love one's neighbor. God calls his people to have a basic goodwill toward the world, to work toward the good of society, to help those who need help, to defend the cause of the orphan and the widow, to care for those who are in need. And those very endeavors should in some form maybe even be outreaches of a church, of a local body. But it is a grave error to mistake that kind of doing or serving as though it is a being. And here's why this matters so much. Even a man who just molested and murdered a child could show up to that soup line all smiley, and you would never know the difference as he dumps the the soup in the bowl, and they all get around and feel good, about what they're doing and about each other, and you would never know the spiritual nature or condition of his heart because there's a being issue that hasn't been addressed yet. Just because you go out and do good things for the poor, that doesn't mean you are the church. God has much to say about who we are as the church, and it has largely to do with they are the ones on whom he has put his special affection by dying for them and removing their transgressions and calling them to himself even as a bride would walk down the aisle to her husband, beautifully dressed, to enter into a lasting covenant marriage. It's a being. It's an identity. It's a life that has to do with knowing and having affection for and living together. It's a being. It's a nature. In these instances of going into the streets or into society and doing good, for those who are the least of these and the lesser of these. You can accomplish those things, and yet nothing might be said of the spiritual condition of any given person's heart or where their standing is between them and the God who created them and who they will certainly meet one day when they pass from this life into the next. And so the first question we want, I hope, for us to answer then is this. What is the true church? What is the nature of the church? And later to, dis- to discuss what are then the consequent actions of those who are the church. So I hope, so far, I hope you are at least somewhat excited or hopeful about going on this journey with me. You could call it a journey of spiritual self-discovery, and I don't mean that in a, our culture's way of self-discovery in an individual sense. I mean in a communal sense, together as a body This is not a time to have an identity crisis as a church. It's a time to know exactly who we are and why we're here and who God has called us to be and what he's called us to do. 
Only by knowing who we are can we rightly do what we're called to do. You know, as I look back at the last few years, it's, it's truly amazing to me as I think about all that's happened. It's amazing at what has happened to lead us to where we are today. And I want to just be clear about something with you. I believe God has been with us. I believe that truly in the depth of my heart. But did you know that virtually every religious group thinks that? Those who call on different gods alike think, certainly God is with me. Without question, he's with me. Isn't every church building project carried out with the basic assumption that God or gods are with us? I mean, you don't go through something like this and arrive at a place like this by believing that God has abandoned you or that he doesn't exist. Everyone assumes. Those who say Jesus was a total charlatan and those who say he was the savior of the world, they both proceed in their lives and their worship with an assumption that they are right and the truth is with them and whatever gods exist are with them. So is God really with us? And please know my goal today isn't to cast you all into existential crisis or doubt everything you thought you knew or to leave you thinking, how do I know anything? How do I know I'm really me? How do I know this is really real and not some computer simulation? How do I know that last night when I looked at the stars, those weren't just holes poked in the box? Somebody said that to me once. I thought, that's actually a really creepy thought. I'm going to just stick with the whole star theory. Trust that the Hubble telescope is accurate. Is God really with us? And will he remain with us if he is? How are we to know these things? How can we answer these questions? I've listened to other church leaders who have been in positions similar to the one our church is in, and they claim to know for a fact God is with them. And yet I've heard some of them say, they give the basis for their knowing. How do they know? How do they know God is with them? And they speak very clearly of how they know, and they say, God told me. God told me this. God told me that. God whispered this to me in my ear while I was driving. God gave me a vision. God gave me this dream. I was driving down the road, and I heard him speak plain as day. Here's what he told me. I've heard those words many times. I've heard them in recent times. And while you want to give the benefit of the doubt to a professing believer in Christ, I don't know that God spoke to you. Because those are the same words Jim Jones said. Those are the same words Joseph Smith said. And people followed blindly. And they, they followed willingly. They followed excitedly, at least for a time. I, I tend to think that Joseph's wife didn't share his enthusiasm when he, he revealed that God told him, to take on somewhere around 40 additional wives and enjoy relations with them. I don't think Emma was quite as enthusiastic about what God was telling her husband at that point. But the words are famous, God told me. Friends, may I suggest a much better measure for inquiring of the Lord. If we want to know God is with us, we would be wise, so wise, to ask this question. Lord, what have you said in your word? What have you revealed to your people through your word. Because what he says in his word is that he has laid down the truth once for all to the saints. He said that very clearly. This is the truth once for all delivered to the saints, the true body of believers, the true church. Stick with what I've said, God says. And so our question would be, Lord, what have you written to us in your word, your holy word? 
to guide us into all truth and to protect us from false teachers. Our question should not be, Lord, what special revelation do you have for us today or for our leaders this week? Our question should be, Lord, what have you revealed in your word? Here's one thing God said in his word, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Test everything. Hold fast what is good, what is true. You're, you're, uh, you're often made to feel very sinful in a church if you question things at times. You don't question, you, you submit. You, you don't have, you don't, Think critically about things that are said. You're, you're told that's unspiritual. God actually says the opposite. You should examine carefully everything that's said here. And you should hold it up to the light of his word. That's what the Bereans did, and they were commended for this. They didn't just take Paul's word for it blindly. They listened very carefully to what Paul said. They considered it, and then they went home, and they opened their scriptures to see if, in fact, what he said was true. What a model. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Please know, I want to be clear, I want to say again, I do believe God is with us, I believe he has blessed us, but as far as knowing this for a fact, all I can really say to you this morning is this, only by holding ourselves up to the objective, fixed standard of his word can we really know anything at all. That's the only way of knowing, for sure. I'm amazed at the financial provision God has given us, even though we have debt. I'm amazed at what he has provided. But I also have to be careful to remember, financial provision is not in itself the same thing as divine blessing. We don't know that it is. After all, haven't billions and billions and billions of dollars now been raised and spent across the world erecting temples, all in the legacy of a false prophet? who was proven to have been deceitful and an adulterer? So is financial provision alone a for sure sign of divine blessing that God is with us? It's not. And yet we want to give him glory because we believe that he's provided. Are bigger or more beautiful buildings a sure sign that a true church is meeting within its walls? It's not a for sure sign. The Taj Mahal is beautiful. Again, I would love to see it, just to to behold the architectural wonder of it all. And yet, within its walls are worshipers who expressly deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They expressly deny that he is the way, the truth, and the life unto salvation. So bigger and beautiful, more beautiful buildings don't necessarily equal sure signs of divine presence and blessing. How can we know anything at all? There must be a fixed point, an anchor, an objective standard outside of ourselves, not within ourselves, not our feelings or our whims or the things we hear, we think we hear from God, but something outside of ourselves that's been revealed that's the same for everyone. Everyone is held up to this the same. It's an equal measure. His word then is our fixed point. It's the truth. It's our ultimate and final authority for everything we believe and everything we do. And his word is sufficient. It's enough. It's enough to lead his people in truth and to lead to salvation. It's sufficient. Here's what we find. It's through the word of God that the spirit of God brings life to the people of God. 
It's through the word of God that the spirit of God brings life to the people of God. Here's how we know this. Romans 10, 8 through 15. But what does it say? And what is it? It's the scriptures. Even as scripture is being written in the New Testament, it's hearkening back to scripture revealed in the old. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? You see what's happening? How is the church formed? How does God gather his people? It's by carrying to them his word. And his spirit brings it to life in their hearts and their souls. And as they have their eyes open to see and their hearts to believe, as they trust in Christ and confess, they are in fact saved. Now, history is an amazing thing. We have the ability to look back and to see that God has raised up voices in every generation, in virtually every place, to faithfully pass on what they have received, the word of truth. Even the apostle Paul, whom God did reveal much to, even he was so clear to say, for what I gave to you is just what I received myself. I'm passing on what I received. That Christ Jesus came, that he was crucified, that he was buried, three days later, was raised to life. And this is of utmost importance. So in every generation, God will raise up those voices who will pass on what they've received, not needing to get themselves in the way of it, not needing to add to it or take from it, not needing to put their own spin on it to faithfully communicate what God has revealed. Now, sadly, there also exist in every single generation false teachers who rise up, who seek nothing else but to draw followers after themselves. And what does that look like? What does that sound like? Hey, you guys need to follow me. You need to listen to me. Here's what God told me. Here's what he's revealed to me. You need to believe me. Instead of this teacher saying, you need to listen to him. We need to open his word and see what he said to us. Ultimately, God will raise up voices in every generation who will say exactly the same thing that John the Baptist said in John 3 verse 30. This has to be the heartbeat of our ministry here. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. Until the very last day, God will raise up those who will be a part of his plan to build his church by passing on the light that has been handed down, leading all those who have ears to hear toward the gospel We must be such a church in our day and our age or our light will go out. We have to be. This has to be our nature. It has to be our being. This has to be our identity. We are at a critical point in the life of this church body. We must not have an identity crisis now. We have to know who we are. We have to know what we're to do. We're not here to exalt ourselves. We're here to exalt the King of Kings. 
what good thing do we have that he hasn't given? Is there anything? What truly good thing do we have in our lives that he has not given? And so what do we have to boast of? But the cross of Christ, our Savior. As Paul said, I'll boast in nothing but the cross. Why, do, why is our, our only boast in the cross? Because it's at the cross that our many sins are forgiven and undone. That's a critical part of the church's identity. It's the entity God has chosen through which to do this redemptive work. Not that a person can't be saved when they're in a country or a place completely cut off from a local church body. God can do what he wants when he wants, and he has saved in exceptional ways at times. But in general, his plan is to build his church. And his church is the place where people are forgiven of their sins and grow to know him and worship and adore him. It's at the cross that our sins are undone. It's at the empty tomb that our souls are brought to life because of the powerful resurrection. Why is the name of our church Cornerstone? Because Jesus is the cornerstone, the Bible says. He's the rock of our salvation. He is the foundation that everything else about a church is built upon that goes up from it. He is our everything, and without him, we're nothing. Without him, there is no true church, at least no true Christian church. Hundreds of years before Jesus even took on flesh or came to this earth as a baby, it was prophesied through Isaiah in Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Now, this maybe isn't as much of a thing these days, but in ancient times, builders the most critical part of the process was the shaping of the cornerstone. The cutting of that stone had to be perfect. It was large. It was, it was perfectly cut. It was flat. It was smooth. It would be the deciding factor in whether the building was square and firm and reliable or whether it was likely to crumble. It had to do with that one rock that was placed in a specific place that everything else went out from and was built upon. And so you can understand why God used that image to communicate to us What is the foundation stone of the building that will be the church? It's the cornerstone, Christ himself. And look what he says. This is so amazing. The one who relies on it, and what is it referring back to? The cornerstone. The one who relies on the cornerstone, who is Jesus, will never be stricken with panic. That's an amazing statement. Other translations say will not make haste, but translators have explained through versions like this one, that what is meant by haste is is kind of freaking out, like running, panicking, making haste. We're familiar with the word panic, aren't we? We panic over a lot of things. Any of you parents ever panicked when you didn't know where your kids were for a moment? Or you hadn't heard from them by the time you were supposed to? Or they're not home yet when they were supposed to? Or we panic when we wake up and there's a little more light coming in the windows than there should be and we realize we forgot to set the alarm? What's that feeling that fills your heart in that moment? At least if you have something important you were supposed to be at. We panic when we're in heavy traffic and someone veers and there's nearly an accident. We panic when we have to be somewhere in four minutes but haven't had my morning coffee yet and the line at the coffee stand is six cars deep. I'm starting to panic. We panic when we urgently need to use a public restroom and we barge in only to see that there's a bit of a line or that... The available thrones aren't exactly spotless. 
We kind of have a brief moment of panic. We panic over bills that are due and a lack of funds to pay them. We, we panic when we're waiting to get our blood work report back from the doctor. We panic when we're little and we go to someone else's house for dinner. And by some horrible fate of coincidence, it seems this host family has cooked exactly all the things that, that we hate the most. And now we're forced with the task of needing to not offend them. Maybe that's not actually something that happens much. That's more repressed childhood trauma on my part. We have a feeling of panic, don't we, when we know we've done something very wrong and it's very likely that we're going to get found out. We panic when we watch more and more and more of the news. We panic when we can't find our keys or our wallet or, heaven forbid, our phone. There's no panic these days like that panic people have. Husbands and wives panic when their spouse starts acting very distant and cold at home and yet seems to be super warm and friendly with everyone else at work or school or church. We're prone to panic. And yet none of these things I've listed, and we could list a thousand more, what's interesting is that none of those even begins to compare to the main reason we all would have to panic ultimately in our lives. Without Jesus, the cornerstone, we would be hopelessly afraid and panic-stricken over the eventual realization that God is in fact very real and one day we will in fact stand face to face with him and we are guilty of a mountain of sins in the shadow of which, under which we cower beneath the weight of eternal punishment and separation looming over us. Without Jesus the cornerstone, we have no hope of being detached from our guilt, from our sin. We have no hope of a clean record. We stand only to face eternal judgment from a God who's perfectly holy and would be perfectly justified in pushing us from himself for eternity. And yet, incredibly, despite this great cause to panic, here is what God has done. In this verse we see, the one who relies on the cornerstone will never be stricken with panic. I don't think that means like any kind of panic in your day-to-day -day life. I think it means ultimate panic over the one reason you truly have to panic. Because of Jesus, the cornerstone, here is what we know. John 5, 24. Let these words just wash over you this morning. Truly, truly, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's not the best news you've ever heard. I don't know what else to give you. If that doesn't move your heart to some degree or, or excite you to some degree, then our prayer should be, Lord, by the time this, this service is over, may your spirit have warmed those hearts and moved those hearts to be overjoyed at the fact that you have done this incredible thing for all who want it. 1 John 5, 11 through 13, we read, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so we have these, these panic moments in our lives, right, over our infirmities and our calamities, but doesn't that just kind of signal this underlying condition that just to be human is to be terminal? I mean, there's just morbidity about us, like we're, we're in for it. And yet we seem to live in this kind of days where we just assume it's just always going to be another day off. You're like, yeah, we all know where it's going. We all know what our eventual end is going to be, and that's dreadful and terrible, and I don't want to think about it. But, you know, for today, for right now, I think things are all right, and that's, 
that's just going to, it's almost like we pretend that's magically just going to stretch on forever. Like that day is just always going to just be another day until it's not. No, eventually, the harsh reality of our condition becomes real to us, and that's dreadful. When, when you're face-to-face with your frailty, your humanness, your condition, when you, when you truly come face-to-face with that in a moment, it's unnerving like anything else is unnerving. It's like this icy hand reaches deep into the deepest places of your heart and mind, and if you're not careful, it will upend all your sanity and steal all your peace. There's this story in the New Testament of a paralytic. I mean, talk about having a condition that would cause some fear and anxiety and panic, right? This was in a day and age where your society didn't care about you that much if you're a paralytic, if you're handicapped. Our society's pretty good about that. This isn't a day and age where you're often cast aside. You're hopeless. You're helpless. And yet, this particular fellow, he's very blessed because he does have friends that care for him. And they decide to take him to Jesus, carrying him on a mat. We read this in Matthew 9, 1 through 2. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are a lot of people in the world that would, would have a lot of words to say to Jesus about this. See, this is what's wrong with you religious people. You say all the spiritual stuff, but you don't actually do anything to help the guy. Like, his need is obviously a physical one, and here you're talking about, oh, your sins are forgiven. No, do something for him that actually helps, would you? That's how the world often talks about the church or believers. Now, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's going to heal the man in just a few moments. He's going to, to bless him in that way. But notice how Jesus takes this moment to cut right to the chase, right to the heart of this man's deepest need, his his truest reason to be anxious and afraid. He addresses this man's biggest problem. And so what we see is that before Jesus does anything, he says, take heart, which means don't be afraid, don't panic. And then he gives him a reason why. Why should you not be afraid? Why should you not panic? Your sins are forgiven. Maybe when that man first heard the words, take heart, maybe he immediately thought, oh, here comes my miracle. This is going to be awesome. This day is going to end well. I don't know if that's what he thought. I have no idea. But what we know is that Jesus says, don't be afraid, take heart. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. What this obviously means is that somewhere along the way, whether earlier in his life or on this journey being carried on this mat, at some point this man put his trust in this person named Jesus who he was going to see. And that changed everything in his life. The greatest need of his life was addressed in the forgiveness of his sin. The greatest reason he had to panic was then relieved. The pressure was relieved. His sins were no more counted against him. And so what we can say this morning, brothers and sisters, is that death is not a sufficient source of our ultimate fear. It shouldn't be the thing we're most afraid of. Eternal guilt and separation from God ought to be our source of greatest panic until we see what God has done for us. Speaking of this new covenant he would make with his people, God said in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their wickedness 
and will remember their sins no more. Again, this is really good news for us this morning, isn't it? Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. So, to wrap up today, there is only one sure foundation upon which a true church can be built. And he is Jesus, the cornerstone. So this passage in Peter, we'll probably get into it more and explain it more in weeks to come, but I want to at least give initial reading to it and give you a, a summarizing thought. So if you have your Bible, you can read along or you can follow along on the screen. First Peter 2, 4, we read this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, it used to be that people tried to get to God by slaughtering animals, which God had commanded for a reason, but it was ultimately ineffective. So these are spiritual sacrifices of the heart that are now being made and are accepted by God. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. For those who, re- who reject Jesus, the cornerstone, there is no building that's going to be built up of, of their lives or their worship. There's no ultimate hope they have. And what is that building that they're missing out on? It's the true body. It's the true church. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You are the church. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it's the gospel, our hope of being forgiven and dwelling forever with God, that is inseparably tied to the cornerstone of what the church is. And so two concluding points for you, and then we'll pick it up next time. Let us be clear then, as we try to draw these threads together, The church is not a physical building. It never has been, and it never will be. I mean, kind of it has been. The temple, you could say, was the church in the Old Testament. I mean, in the era of the gospel. Now, I often will be a little careless with my words, and I'll refer to this place as, I'll meet you at the church. Many of you will do that in years to come. I'm not going to give you a hard time for that, because I say it on accident as well. What's important, I hope, is that we know That's not actually the church. This is not actually the church. It's just a building where the church gathers in assembly together to worship their God. The church is not physical. The church is the people of God who form a spiritual building built on the sure foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone of the church. It's the people who are gathered as a spiritual building on the foundation of Christ and on the gospel. That's what the church is. That's who the church is. Which means 
Every single person from the, the earliest days when Jesus died and was resurrected until now and on into the end of human history, every single person who trusts in Christ, Christ for salvation, is the church. All people in all places at all times who have called on the name of the Lord to be saved, they are the church. All of them. Every last one. One last point. The true church, then, is made up of all who have been brought to new spiritual life by the Spirit of God, having been reconciled to God by trusting in the atoning death and overcoming resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. That's who it is. That's what it's made up of. That's who it's made up of. Those who have been brought to spiritual life, who are saved, who are believers, they are the community who are the church. They always have been and they always will be. Now, according to God's word, the church is more than that, but it is never less than that. So today's message was introductory. We'll, we'll pick it up there next time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you have called us to be the church, to be your people, to be the forgiven ones. Lord, we are not special other than that you've placed your special affection on us by choosing to forgive us and bring us into your family, giving us your name, adopting us. Lord, you've washed our sin away if we've confessed in you and trusted in you and repented and believed. We didn't deserve this and we cannot earn this. It's something you give by grace through faith. And it's this incredible regenerative work that you do by your spirit that brings a person into what is the church, the body. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's not physical. It's the gathered ones who are yours. It's your people. Lord, help us to be secure in this identity. Help us to be happy in this identity. Help us to find our ultimate life's purpose in this identity. Not to have hearts that run after everything in the world and try to be at home and try to find pleasure apart from you. We will find ourselves empty and alone and afraid when all the while you call us into a community, into a place of safety and belonging and purpose, a place of redemption and forgiveness, a place of grace and mercy. What beautiful, beautiful things you have said and done for your church. Lord, help us to run hard in this path, to be your people, to live as we're to live in this world, to draw many into this family, this community. That's our hope, Lord. I hope, I hope it's our hope. May the hope you offer be what drives us. Thank you for your grace that makes this all possible. Lord, thank you for giving us this time to be here today. We ask it all in your name. Amen.